Our passage is 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, 16, and 17. When I was younger, the thing that I hated most in life was speaking in front of people. And in high school, we were supposed to take freshman speech. I waited till I was a senior, hoping they would forget that I needed to take it. They didn't forget, and I had to take it as a senior with a bunch of freshmen. Didn't make it any better. I still hated it. I got to seminary, and I didn't realize this till this week, but I waited till my very last semester of my master's degree to take preaching, and I guess I was still stalling and trying to put that off as long as I could, and I thought about my preaching class this week. I took it with a guy named Dr. Robert Vogel. He retired a couple of years ago, but he was a great preaching professor at Southern Seminary, and in his class, he taught us about preaching. He talked about preaching. And then we, as a class, worked through two books of the Bible. We worked through the book of James and the book of 1 John. And with the book of James, you had to actually preach a 20-minute sermon. He gave you a passage, a couple of verses, and you had to preach it. And the whole class took a turn, and we made it all the way through the book. With the book of 1 John, you didn't have to preach it in front of people, but you had to write it. You had to outline. You had to research. You had to study. uh, You had to submit a manuscript. And as I was studying this week, I thought about my preaching class because my assigned passage in Dr. Vogel's preaching class, Ministry of Proclamation at Southern Seminary, was 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, 16, 17. So after I studied, I pulled up my old files, and I said, well, I wonder what I came up with. And it was really good stuff. It was great. I looked at it and I said, man, I deserved that A. That was really, really good. And so this sermon is about uh, 14 years old in the making. Let's jump in. Let me remind you that when John talks about love of God, or in this passage we're going to look at this morning, love of the Father. He's talking about the love that we have for God. He's not talking about the love that God has for us. He is going to talk about that later in the book. But in these early verses, these early chapters, when he talks about love of God, love of Father, he's talking about the love that we have for the Father. And so we saw this, if you remember 1 John chapter 2, Verse 5 says, whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. That doesn't mean if you keep God's word, he loves you more and more and more. That means when you keep God's word, you find yourself loving God more and more and more. You see the same idea in our passage in verse 15 where he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He's talking about the love that we have for God. And in these early verses of 1 John, John, the author, is connecting two ideas. He's connecting the two great commandments, that we should love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. And so in chapter 2, verse 5 in 15, he talks about the love that we have for God. Sandwiched in the middle, 1 John chapter 2, verse 10, he talks about whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And he's doing essentially what Jesus did. He's read the Gospels, he's listened to Jesus, he's been around Jesus, and he understands the two great commandments, just as Jesus coupled them in Matthew 22, or Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. And so John is coupling those ideas together early on in this letter. One of the things I want to make sure you see 
clearly and you understand clearly is that in our passage, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, we come to the first imperative in this book. As an author, John uses fewer imperatives than any other author in the New Testament. Per how many words he actually writes, he uses imperatives or command statements fewer than any other author. But he uses one here. It's the first one in the book of 1 John, and it's the command, do not love the world. That's the big idea of the passage. It's really, really simple, straightforward passage. Believers must not love the world. It's rooted, that big idea is rooted in the command in 1 John 2.15 where he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. That's an imperative. It's a command. And the rest of the short passage just explains why we shouldn't love the world. So take your copy of the scriptures. We're going to read these three verses and then we're going to pray and we're going to dive in. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Father, we gather together as your people this morning, and we gather together around the authority of your word. There are so many things happening all around us right now. There are things that seem out of control. There are things that that don't seem right. Father, we gather together as your people. We pray that your kingdom would come. We pray that your word would be living and active and powerful in our hearts and our minds. Father, we pray that your spirit would be at work in us this morning to change us into the kind of people that you would have us to be. Lord, give us understanding as we study your word together. Father, give us wisdom to know how it might apply to our lives. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to begin and end with a question, and it's essentially the same question that we're going to think about, but the question is this. What are your favorite things in the world? If I just asked you to make a list, just gave you two minutes and said, make a list, your top ten, what are some of your favorite things in the world? I, I did that this week. I just thought about some of my favorite things. Uh, top of my list, I put my family. I love my family, my wife and my kids. I uh, got to spend some time with my wife over the last couple of days and made me love my kids a little bit more when you're not around them all the time. But I love my wife and love my kids. Uh, I thought about basketball. I love basketball. I love watching basketball. Uh, I love talking about basketball. love rooting for the 2020 national champion Kansas Jayhawks. And uh, we're eager to defend our title next year. All you Tech fans have been telling me about this transfer you got coming and you're going to win the conference and the Jayhawks are not scared. We're ready to defend our title. Uh, I thought about West Texas. I love West Texas. And I love, one of the things I love about West Texas is that we don't have many trees. I know some people like trees. I've lived in 
parts of the country where I thought there was too many trees, and I just felt claustrophobic, and I felt closed in, and I couldn't see anything. And so I like no trees, and I like being able to look and see, and there are no trees blocking my view. Uh, I love Mexican food, chips and queso. In fact, I plan on having some for lunch today. And I bet you have your favorite spot where you say, man, I love to go to this place and have chips and salsa, chips and queso. I love congregational singing. One of the things I think I missed the most over the weeks that we couldn't be together was just the lack of congregational singing. And I was in the room every time we did a live stream singing. I was in the room every time we recorded for a Sunday morning singing. But it's not the same as being together with God's people in the same room and singing with them. I I could go on and on. I gave you some examples. You're thinking of some examples. There are things in this world, when you think about them, you say, man, I, I love those people. I love those activities. I love those things. And John says this, 1 John 2, 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. I promise you, John is not coming for your chips and queso. I promise you. You can go to Rose's. You can pick it up on the way home. You can root for the Jayhawks. You can love your family. All of those things are great. If you want to understand what John is saying, you've got to think about the word that he's using when he says don't love the world or the things in the world. The Greek word, it's a simple word, cosmos. Cosmos. And in the New Testament, it has three broad basic meanings. Sometimes it just means the physical universe, like the atoms, the stuff that God made, the dirt, the trees, the rocks, the water, all the physical parts of creation. Sometimes when you read this word in the New Testament, it talks about people, human beings, humanity, the people who live on the world can be described as the world. But sometimes the word, and this is what it means here, refers to what we could just call fallenness. Just the broken nature of life on this earth. And more than just brokenness, the rebelliousness of life on this earth. One Bible commentator described the world in this sense like this. It's the invisible spiritual system of evil that rules on the earth. It rules in our hearts and it stands in opposition to God. That's the world as John is using it here when he gives this first imperative, do not love the world or the things in the world. And in these three verses, he uses that word, world, six times. That's what he's talking about over and over and over. Don't love it. Don't love the things in it. And then he's explaining to us why. He is certainly not saying, don't love the creation itself. You're actually, you and I are supposed to be stewards over creation. So he's not talking about the physical universe. He's not talking about other people. He's not saying don't love others. We know from other passages in the New Testament, clearly even passages in this book, in this chapter, we're to love our brothers and our sisters in Christ. We're to love our our neighbor. We're to love even our enemies, Jesus says. John's talking about this fallen broken, busted, rebellious, defiant world system that you and I are born into and actually contribute to apart from God's grace in our lives. He's warning us about it. And here's the question. Why does he warn us about loving the world? Why is he so concerned 
worried, bothered that we would love the world. Let me give you some some reasons. These are all straight out of the text. Number one, loving the world and loving God are incompatible. They're incompatible. The mathematical formula just doesn't equate. You can love one or you can love the other, but you can't love both. Verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father, love that you have for God the Father, is not real. It's not present. It's not genuine. Those two things are mutually exclusive. Jesus talked about this, Luke 16. He said, no servant can serve two masters. He will hate the one and love the other. He'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, Jesus is specifically talking about money, not the world more broadly, but the principle is exactly what John is telling us. You can love one. You can't love both. Jesus' little brother James picks up on this idea, James 4.4. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world, he knows that's a thing. It's possible that you might be friends with the world, but if you are, that's enmity with God. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. These are mutually exclusive realities. There's no spectrum here. There's no scale here where you could say, well, am I, am I in the middle? Am I further one way or the other? James, John, Jesus himself, they all just say these are incompatible loves. I think the most clear way we see this, and this is maybe a sad reflection on our culture, but I think the most clear way that we see this sort of incompatibility today is when we think about our favorite college teams. And so I told you uh, I was a Jayhawks fan. You guys know that. If you're a Kansas Jayhawk fan, you know that there's something called the border war. You're not supposed to call it the war anymore. That's not appropriate. So it's the border rivalry. But it goes all the way back to the Civil War, and it's the University of Kansas and the University of Missouri, and it it's hatred. The schools hate each other. The players don't like each other. The fans don't like each other. The states don't like each other. It's an incompatible thing. It became less of a thing when Missouri left the conference. But these two schools, they're just a rivalry, an incompatibility. If you live up in that part of the country, you won't find many people who say, you know what, I love Kansas and I love the University of Misery. Not many people. It's one or the other. Another example, the Bedlam rivalry, OU-OSU. When we lived in Oklahoma, one of the first things uh, they asked us when we were moving there, the search team, are you going to stoke this rivalry as our pastor? Most of the people who lived in Kingfisher were Oklahoma State fans. The previous pastor was an OU fan, And they said, he used to bring it up a lot, and we didn't think it was funny. So if you're going to bring it up, we're probably not going to hire you. And I said, as long as you don't like the University of Misery, I don't have anything to say to you. You guys can have your own little thing. But when you live in Oklahoma, it's kind of either or. Most people don't really love and root for both. You kind of pick one or you pick the other. I'll give you a few more examples. We lived in Kentucky. It was UK and UofL. They don't like each other. The state legislature 
has mandated that they play each other every year. And when they play, you just know there's going to be fights. It's going to be chippy. Somebody's going to get kicked out. There's going to be personal fouls. There's going to be technical fouls. There's going to be unnecessary roughness, whatever the sport is. They just don't really like each other. One last example. My granddad, a couple of years ago, played football at TCU. He doesn't like Baylor at all. And some of you really like Baylor, and I'm guessing you don't own a lot of purple. You don't root for the Horned Frogs. Typically, those are sort of incompatible teams. You usually don't root for both. Now, listen, here's what John's saying, right? We know it in a faint, sort of laughing way on this earth. John puts it on a cosmic scale, and he says, you can love the world and the things in the world, or you can have love for the Father, but these two things can't coexist at the same time in the same place in the same heart. They're incompatible. They're mutually exclusive. Why does he warn us? One, they're incompatible. Two, the things, that's John's word, the things of the world are not from God. Things of the world are not from God. In a sense, verse 16 explains verse 15. Because in 15, he says, don't love the world or the things in the world. And you and I are left wondering, what do you mean the things in the world? That's a broad word. That's a generic word. What are these things? John explains it in verse 16. All that is in the world, here it is, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. All these things are not from the Father, but from the world. Just take them one at a time quickly. The desires of the flesh. I think John's talking about our tendency to be controlled by our physical appetites. For the things that we have a natural physical longing for to control us, to control the direction of our lives, to control our behaviors. Our tendency just to be almost reduced to unthinking animals that just sort of follow instinct and desire, the desires of the flesh. He talks about the desires of the eyes, the desires of the eyes, the things that we see that we instantly covet, the people that we see that we might lust after, the ideals that we see portrayed in culture and media that we might instinctively chase after, the desires of the eyes. It's our tendency to judge everything by what we can see, by externals. The pride of life, boasting and bragging about our accomplishments, seeing ourselves as the highest authority, our ability to reason and think as the, the end-all, be-all, our tendency to exalt ourselves not just above other people but even above God. John describes all these things just very broadly, but also very deeply. Heart issues. He says, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, these things are not from the Father, they're from the world. As you look at that list, it makes me think of Adam and Eve in the garden. Look what we read in Genesis 3. When the woman saw that the tree was good, for food. That was a physical desire that she had for food. God gave her that desire. He 
built her that way. He made human beings that way. But in this story, that physical desire begins to control the decisions she makes with absolutely no respect to God and his authority or his commandments. She's being controlled by the desires of the flesh. She saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. Looked good. God said don't, but it sure looked appealing. She's judging by externals. Her eyes see something and she wants it. She covets it. She desires it. It was good for food, a delight to the eyes, and that it was desired to make one wise. It's the pride of life. It's this tendency that we have to exalt ourselves over other people and even over God. They faced these temptations in the garden, Adam and Eve did, and they failed miserably. You know who else faced these temptations? Not just Adam and Eve in the garden, but Jesus in the wilderness. Think about Jesus being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Jesus, turn these stones to bread. Aren't you hungry? Aren't you going to allow a physical desire to control what you do and when you do it? It's the desires of the flesh. Jesus, look at the kingdoms of the world and all their glory and all their splendor. They could be yours. Look how beautiful they are. Look how magnificent they are. Don't you want them? Throw yourself down. And Satan said, if you throw yourself down, the angels are coming. They'll bear you up. You won't strike your foot on a stone. The implication is think about how people would receive you if they saw that. If they saw you leap from the pinnacle of the temple and the angels swooped in to rescue you, surely everyone would recognize you as the Messiah then. It's the desires of the flesh. It's the desires of the eyes. It's the pride of life. And where Adam and Eve failed in the garden, Jesus obeyed perfectly. He obeyed perfectly. You understand that you and I are going to face these same temptations every day whether you realize you're facing them or not. This is just big, broad uh, categories of temptation. You're going to face the temptation to live your life based on the natural, physical desires that you have and just to follow that wherever it may lead without ever stopping to say, is this a good desire? Is this a desire I ought to be having? Is this a desire I ought to fulfill in this way? The world is just going to tell you, just fulfill all of them. Any that come your way whenever you feel like it. It's the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes. Don't you see these things? Isn't that the essence? It's essentially marketing in the United States. Look at this. Don't you want it? Don't you need it? Don't you deserve it? It's the pornography industry. Lust after this thing, the desires of the eyes. It's the pride of life. You are the most important. You can chart your course. You can decide who you want to be and which way you want to go in your life. It's really all up to you. We're going to face these exact same temptations. Here's what John wants you to know. When you experience these temptations, understand they're not from the Father. They're not from God. They're from the world. Don't fall for it. This is not from God. This is from the world. These things are incompatible. The things of the world are not from God. Why does he warn us, number three, the world is passing away. It's passing away. Verse 17. 
The world is passing away along with its desires. I tried to think this week of how, how it could help us to think about the idea that the world is passing away. Immediately, my mind went to Psalm 1. In my personal Bible reading, I've been uh, in the book of Psalms as I work through the Old Testament, and so Psalms are on my mind. And I thought of Psalm 1. I thought about the psalmist saying that the righteous person is like a tree planted by streams of water, and roots go down deep, and it's strong, and it's secure, and it bears fruit. And the wicked are not like that. The wicked are like chaff, like the husk of the grain, and you just toss it up in the wind, and the wind just blows it away. That tree planted by the water isn't going anywhere. The chaff, it just blows away, passing away. I thought this week you may find this uh, trivial, but I thought of Indiana Jones. If I find an Indiana Jones movie on TV, I can't help but watch at least a little bit of it. And maybe you remember the scene in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade where he, he finds himself fighting Nazis on a tank. What could be more perilous than fighting Nazis on a tank? And they're fighting, and he almost gets smashed into the rock in this picture, and he's knocking people out, and there's all sorts of drama and action. But at some point in this scene, he realizes the tank is headed for a cliff, right? It's about to go over the edge into this canyon, and he wants off. Shocking, right? He wants off. He doesn't want to be on the tank when it goes over the cliff. That's essentially what John's saying to you. Look, this world that you find yourself a part of, it's going over the cliff. Don't be on it when it goes. You've got to get off. Your cinematic taste may not be as refined as mine. You may not like Indiana Jones, and maybe you don't know what I'm talking about. I bet you've been to the grocery store, even if you had to wear a mask or wait in the line to get in or something like that. When you go to the grocery store and you go to the produce section, Everybody's doing the same thing. They're looking for something good, something fresh, right? When you go down the mac and cheese aisle, you don't test the boxes. You just throw it in the cart. But when you go to the produce section, you look and you pick it up and you turn it around and maybe if no one's looking, you smell it or you thump it or whatever you do to test the produce. Brooke and I, over the last couple of weeks, have been going to Market Street We've been buying these bags of avocados. They're little bitty avocados. They got them in a bag. We've been buying these bags, taking them home. We've been making guacamole. We got guacamole coming out of our ears. We've had so much guacamole. But they've been really, really good. They just take them home and they're ready to use that day. You don't have to wait on them to get ripe. Last week, we made it home with a bag of avocados. We cut them open to make guacamole, and every last one of them was rotten. Yeah, Just... Yeah, it's gross. I went to the grocery store yesterday. I walked right by the avocados. I don't, they're passing away. I don't need them. I don't want them. I'm not interested in them. Like, they might look good in a sense, but it's rotten. It's passing away. That's kind of the idea that John's communicating here. The world and its desires are passing away. One last way to think about this, there's a guy named J. Paul Getty. You may have heard of him. He made a lot of money in oil, a lot of money. In the 40s, Fortune magazine said that he was the richest living American. He's an interesting guy. If you read about his life, he's also a very quotable guy. I'll share with you a few quotes 
from J. Paul. He said, rise early, work hard, and strike oil. That's a pretty good motto for life, especially if you live in the Permian Basin. Get up early, work hard, and find a way to strike oil. He also said this, if you can count your money, you don't have a billion dollars. I can count my money, all of it. J. Paul said this, if you owe the bank 100 bucks, that's your problem. If you owe the bank 100 million, that's the bank's problem. That's pretty good. Look at this one. The best things in life are things. Can you imagine going through life really and truly believing that? That's the mantra. That's the, the worldview. That's the mindset that John is warning you about here when he says the world is passing away. The things in the world are passing away. Uh, that worldview that the best things in life are things, it will make you miserable in this life and it will leave you hopeless in the next life. Can you imagine passing from this life to eternity, the richest living American, you suddenly find yourself standing before God, portfolio empty, because all of the things that you loved were left in this world. They're passing away, John says. One last warning. It's really not a warning. It's more of a promise or a word of encouragement. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. That's the very last part of verse 17. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. I don't know about you, but I read that verse, verse 17, and when I read it, I have an inner Pharisee that lives in my heart, and he likes to rear his ugly head as often as possible. And when I read that verse, here's what it says, whoever does the will of God abides forever. I read that and I say, man, I guess it's all up to me in the end. I mean, I want to abide forever. I don't, certainly don't want the alternative. John says, if you do the will of God, you abide forever. And this inner Pharisee in my heart pokes his head up and he says, see, I, I told you, it's all on you. You better be good. You better not be bad. It's all up to you. And then I just have to stop and I have to think, is that, is that what John's talking about in this book? Is that what the New Testament is talking about? Is that what Jesus said in the Gospel of Mark when he began his public ministry? He said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Turn from your sin and believe the good news that God has acted to save human beings. That's the good news of the gospel. That's, in a sense, if you want to say it this way, God's will for you. That's what doing his will would be. It's what it would look like. Turn from your sin and believe in Jesus. Jesus clarified this. He made it even more explicit in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 40. This is the will of my Father, the will of my Father. John's talking about doing the Father's will. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. He'll abide forever. He'll live forever. God's will is that you look away from this world, you look away from yourself, and you look to Jesus in faith. Believe. 
We started with a question. We'll end with the same question. What is it that you ultimately love? I thought this week about the Apostle Paul. We remember Paul is a great missionary, a great church planner, and we read through the New Testament. Paul gets a lot of the, the airtime. He gets a lot of the attention. But throughout his ministry, Paul had friends. He had coworkers. He had co-laborers. And they pop up in the book of Acts, and they pop up in his letters. And one of his friends was a man named Demas. Demas. At one point, Paul found himself in prison for really no reason at all. He wrote a couple of letters while he was in prison in that stint. He wrote the book of Ephesians. He wrote the book of Philippians. He wrote the book of Colossians. He wrote the short letter to Philemon. We call these the prison epistles. He was in prison. And at the end of one of those letters, Colossians chapter 4, he mentions a guy named Demas. And he says, hey, Demas, he's with me in my suffering. He has not abandoned me, and he sends greetings to you, the church in Colossae. It's one of his co-workers. Paul eventually got out of prison, only to find himself back in prison, this time in Rome. And the last letter that Paul wrote was a letter to Timothy. And at the end of that letter, Demas shows up again. But at the end of 2 Timothy, Demas doesn't show up to send greetings as he stands by Paul's side. This is what we read in 2 Timothy 4.10. Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. He loved the present world. He abandoned the mission. He abandoned his friend. There was something in Thessalonica that had his heart. There was someone in Thessalonica that had his heart to such a degree that Paul looked at the situation and he said, you know what's really going on here? He loves this world. And he's abandoned me. What a striking example of a bad decision, of somebody who faces the things of this world, these temptations we talked about, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, and who chooses this present world that's passing away over abiding forever. I want to pray this morning for you and for me that we would not be people who love this world. So let's pray.